Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Rebecca Goldstein is an American philosopher, novelist, and public intellectual. She holds a PhD in philosophy of science from Princeton University and has written 10 books, both fiction and nonfiction. Her first book was her 1983 novel, The Mind-Body Problem. Goldstein spoke to the Institute in 2006 about her book, Betraying Spinoza, the renegade Jew who gave us modernity. I'm told by our speaker that she's not going to tell us which Jew she's talking about at the outset. So I'm not going to tell you which Jew is giving the talk, but here she is. <laughs> so I want to talk to you today about a certain philosophical extremist. This is a man who made every claim for the life of the mind that's ever been made. He argued that the consolations of philosophy are so potent that they can, they ought to take the place of the consolations of religion, at least of religion as they are conventionally understood. He tended to call these the superstitious religions. Quite obviously, he didn't think much of religion, and religion returned the favor. As you notice, I'm holding off saying his name for the time being, though you probably know who it is. Dealing with him in a detached and impersonal manner suits him, because he happens to be philosophy's strongest advocate for impersonal detachment, for viewing oneself from a vantage point of such radical objectivity that one almost loses the sense of one's personal identity, of who one just happens to be in the vast scheme of things. This is his idea of salvation. I said that this philosopher is an extremist, and even his writing style is extreme, modeling itself after including geometry, starting with definitions and axioms, and then producing everything, trying to deduce everything a priori, after cumbersome proof. It's all very formal, very formidably formal. There are various reasons, I would argue, for his eccentric style, but not least of all, I think, is deliberate obfuscation, using extreme rigor to protect what he's saying, said that only the most rigorously rational, the most patiently cerebral, can actually access it. Unfortunately for you, I've done this. <laughs> Just tear off all the deductive wrapping paper and get to the goods. He takes the most extreme position that it's possible to take in regard to a whole cluster of philosophical questions. And the first one is this. In some sense, for him, it's really the only philosophical question because everything else that he says follows, or in any place is claimed to follow, from the answer that he gives to this one question. And here it is. Does every fact in the world have a reason that explains why it's a fact? Is there always an explanation? Or does there exist at some level, some root contingency, at either a superficial level, some trifling, arbitrary fact, or or at a profound level, deep down in the bowels of the fundamental laws of nature. Is there at any level at all facts which are facts for no other reasons than that they're facts? This philosopher, this extremist, answers no. All facts have explanation. Every fact that's true, there's a reason for why it's true. There simply can't be the inexplicably given 
A fact is a fact for no other reason. It's a fact. In other words, no inexplicable dangling threads hanging from the fabric of the world. This intuition, which a younger contemporary of his, who kind of ripped him off, called the principle of sufficient reason, I call the presumption of reason. And various famous physicists have uh, expressed it as well. This is for this philosopher who never explicitly states it, but only uses it again and again. This is the fundamental metaphysical intuition. And from it, he sets out to deduce the entire nature of reality and even more. He treats the presumption of reason as if it's on a par with the laws of logic, as a rule of inference that he avails himself of over and over again in the course of deriving uh, his system. Because this philosopher believed that the presumption of reason was itself logically true, and he happened to have been wrong about this, is it logically true? But because he believed that this presumption was logically true, and he believes that his entire system consists of the logical implications of this one presumption, he thought that he had proved that his system described the only logically possible world. He thought he had proved that the world is the way it is because logically, this is the way it has to be. There's just one possible world. And this is why he could write with such confidence to a young man whom he once taught named Albert Berg, who had just <coughs> very much disappointed him he had converted to Catholicism, and was now challenging his former teacher in a very obnoxious sort of way, exhorting him to save himself from everlasting damnation by accepting Jesus as his personal savior, etc., etc. How this young man had asked this philosopher, can you presume that you have found the best philosophy? I do not presume that I have found the best philosophy, he wrote back. I know that I understand the true philosophy. If you ask in what way I know it, I answer. In the same way as you know that the three angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles. Unquote. There are no arbitrary aspects of reality, he argues, and there can be, he asserts, on the basis of the presumption of reason, then logic <clears throat> itself must, logically must, be sufficient to explain the world. What he will actually go on to assert, in fact, and we're taking several leaps here, is that logic itself is the world. Logical entailments constitute the very stuff of reality. Logic itself is the world because it has to be, logically, if there are no dangling inexplicables. The world itself consists of all logical implications spun out in their entirety, only not lying dead and inert, but an infinity of logical implications that is infinitely aware of itself, animated with thought and taking on the full heft and being and weight of reality. This vast and animated system of logical implications of logic spun out in its entirety is what the world must be, he argues, if all is to be explained. And this is his version of the ontological argument for, for the existence of God. It's this vast sweep of logical entailments that he dubs Deus Ue Natura, God or Nature. The world is the same that can be conceived of alternatively as God or as nature, though obviously what he means to signify by these familiar terms is something 
emphatically distinct from what we usually mean to signify by that nature in particular means this system of logical implications which doesn't mean babbling books and whispering kinds and mattering squirrels. This claim about the world really is entails a particular answer for him as to how we know the world. Ontology dictates epistemology. If the world is constituted of the stuff of logic, if all that exists, exists necessarily, then obviously there's only one faculty of the mind suitable for perceiving the world as it truly is. And that's the faculty of, of pure reason, of a priori reason, a faculty that grasps logical connections. There's a perfect fit between the stuff of the world and our faculty of reason. Or as he puts it, as one of my favorite lines of his, in fact, I find it poetic. The eyes of the mind, whereby it sees things and understands, are none other than proofs. Of course, this is part of the justification for the formidable formality of his style of philosophizing. It's not only intended for keeping out the insufficiently rational that he constructs proof after cumbersome proof. Deductive reason is representational, showing us the way the world really is in a way that experience, even the most direct experience, isn't. This philosopher's ambitions on behalf of reason are staggering. Pure reason can deduce not only the nature of the world, what it's like, its fundamental laws, but also the reason why it exists at all. We can also deduce, he argues, pure a priori, reason, ethics, the way we ought to live, what we ought to care about, what we ought to desire. In fact, he calls his magnum open and lays out this full system, the ethics. So he's given over to pure reason, the human capacity for seeing what follows from what, the ability to deduce for itself answers that are more often claimed to belong to the domain of religion. Such questions as why does the world exist at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? Such questions as what's the difference between right living and wrong living? What do we want from our lives? What is it to live a life well lived? Can we achieve salvation? And if so, how? The presumption of reason, which he argues, entails not only the world as it is, but the world as it had to be. And not only the world as it had to be, but our lives as they ought to be, famously deducing an ought from this. This presumption of reason led him to deny any need to resort to claims of revelations from on high or to rely on the clergy's attempt to mediate between us and on high. He's very, very clear about this, that reason trumps religion. No contest. The dangers that were lurking in religious belief and the excesses of believers, their ulterior motives, not to speak of the ulterior motives of religious leaders, was an issue that he felt very keenly, for very good reasons. Religious intolerance was, in fact, his paramount practical concern. It was really the problem that animated his life and his work. And what he was proposing was that our faculty of reason could combat the dangers of religious belief. He proposed that religion, that reason, could defang the superstitious religions with a religion of reason that would cancel out, that would render redundant 
the religions of this day that had yielded such power and wreaked such havoc on the society of his day, which is why this philosopher is suddenly having a comeback. I think this is the reason why this philosopher who lived in the 17th century suddenly feels to us rather urgently relevant. His religion of reason offered, just like more conventional religions, the promise of salvation, he actually uses this word, salvation. We can save ourselves in the only way that doesn't entail a lie about reality by becoming rigorously, ruthlessly rational, by objectively seeing the world and our place within it. The world, he argued, is this all-embracing web of necessary connection, intelligible through and through, and our individual salvation rests in our knowingness. In seeing the world through the eyes of the mind, the proofs of abstract reason, our own personal salvation, motivated by our essential commitment to our own individual survival and well-being, so there is no other motivation for behavior, our own personal salvation consists in achieving the most impersonal of worldviews. To assimilate this viewpoint, radical objectivity, is to achieve a stance of radical objectivity, is to see everything, including, most importantly, one's own self, subspecia eternitatis, as he put it, under the guise of a certain form of eternity. And to achieve this viewpoint, to fully assimilate it, not only intellectually, but emotionally, and one of the things that he insists on is that the intellectual and the emotional are always inextricably intertwined, to achieve this viewpoint intellectually and emotionally is to change not only one's relationship with the world, but with oneself. From this vantage point of extreme objectivity, all the purely individual facts of one's existence, the circumstances into which one was passively born, one's own family and history, one's racial, religious, cultural, sexual, or national identity, all of this recedes into insignificance, and all the lingering emotional attachments to such accidents of precedent are only evidence of impartial rationality and obstacles in the way of achieving a life worth living. To the extent that we're rational, he argued, merely personal matters matter not at all. To the extent that we're rational, personal identity itself shrivels away almost into insignificance. The fact of who I happen to be, the continued fact, who I happen to be in the infinite scheme of things, that which throbs with a very special significance for me, this disappears altogether in the apprehension of the scheme itself. And this, of course, is what I meant by saying that he's philosophy's strongest advocate for impersonal detachment. The radical conclusion that he reached is this. To the extent that we're rational, to the extent that we actively reconstruct our identity through reason, we all of us partake in exactly the same identity. When one has achieved this purely active identity, the fulfillment of one's rational capacity that induces a sense of mere estrangement from one's own passively received self, and this 
actually works. It really does do this. He says, one is saved. One is delivered into a sort of rationalist bliss, which he called on more day intellectualist, the intellectual love of God. In the grip of this vision, one can regard even one's own personal death, the thought one dare not think, with a degree of philosophical detachment. The wise man, he says, thinks least of all things on his own death. Our inability to realistically contemplate our own demise accounts, according to him, for the otherwise incomprehensible power over us of these superstitious religions. How do we get ourselves to believe them? Only reason, as rigorous as we can muster it up, can truly save us, both give us the truth and also deliver us from our primal fear of the truth. When we have attained an adequate knowledge of the infinite system, which is the one and only self-explanatory system, he calls the causa the thing which explains itself, that infinite system, which consists of a vast interlocking matrix of necessary connections, and by so grasping us, transformed our very selves, intellectually and emotionally, purging our minds <coughs> of the illusions of contingency, reconstituting our minds with the divine necessity, so filling our minds with the absolute necessity that encompasses everything, including oneself, that the contingent connection with that thing and the vast spread of things with which one happens to be identical seems to almost waver out of existence. Then, he says, only peace will be possible within each of us, peace of full acquiescence, and also Peace will be possible between us, the peace of unity of purpose. Then, he says, we will arrive at that state of mind that he's dubbed blessedness. And this was a man, in fact, who had been known in three different languages, Hebrew, Portuguese, and Latin, by a name that translates into blessed, Baruch, Bento, and Benedictus. And then his last name, of course, was Spinoza. Baruch Spinoza, Benedictus Spinoza, the holy fury that was aroused by the name of Spinoza, both in his day, he was born in 1632 and died quite a young man in 1675, in his day and well into the 18th century, into the age of enlightenment, is in stark contrast to the man's predilection for peace and quiet. He confessed himself to have a horror of all controversy. Quote, I absolutely dread quarrels, he wrote an acquaintance, explaining why he had declined to publish a shorter work that contains some of the main themes of the ethics, entitled Short Treatise of God, Man, and His Well-Being. The signet ring he wore throughout his life was inscribed with the word caute, Latin for cautiously. And the signet ring was also engraved with the image of a thorny rose so that he literally signed his name, Sabrosa. Also, Espinosa in uh, Portuguese means corn. And yet despite the signet ring and the dread of quarrels, he aroused some pretty serious ire in his day, well beyond. On July 27, 1656, we just marked the 350th anniversary this summer, the following writ of formal excommunication was read out in the Portuguese Jewish synagogue of Amsterdam before the gathered congregants. 
the guest of honor give the ceremony. It's a long document, and I just want to read a little bit to you because I find it fascinating. By decree of the angels and by the command of the holy men, we excommunicate, expel, curse, and damn Baruch de Espinoza with the consent of God, blessed be he, and with the consent of the entire, entire holy congregation, and in front of these holy scrolls with the 613 precepts, which are written therein. Cursing him with the excommunication with which Joshua van Jericho and with the curse which Elisha cursed the boys and with all the castigations that are written in the book of the law. Cursed be he by day, cursed be he by night. Cursed be he when he lies down and cursed be he when he rises up. Cursed be he when he goes out and cursed be he when he comes in. The Lord will not spare him, but that the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smote against that man. And all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. But you that cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you this day. We warn that none may contact him orally or in writing, and do him any favor, nor stand in the same roof with him, nor read any paper he made or wrote. This is just part of it, and I'll stop before it gets really nasty. Mark <laughs> Espinosa was then 23 years old. He hadn't yet written any of the works for which we now know him. He had studied, and his only formal education, in fact, was within that community, the Portuguese Jewish community of Amsterdam, studied in the Talmud Torah there, most likely under the chief Rabbi Mortieri, and also two other very famous rabbis of the community, Rabbi Aboab and Manasseh ben Israel, painted by Rembrandt. He reported, unsurprisingly, to have been a very good student. What had that studious boy done long before he had published anything that had so enraged his community? So the writ of excommunication is very long on damnation and calumny. It's short on specific charges. Only vague heresies and abominations are mentioned. The vehemence and finality of his denunciation, of Spinoza's denunciation by his community, has long intrigued scholars, but not because excommunication was so rare in the Amsterdam community. Quite the contrary, excommunication, or harem, as it's known in Hebrew, and as it was practiced in that community, wasn't as severe and final a punishment as, as the word now suggests. In fact, the word excommunication is, is probably somewhat misleading. Ostracism is really a better word for translation for harem. The period of isolation from the community, the terms of the harem didn't extend outside of Amsterdam, typically lasted anywhere from a day or two to several years, depending on the infraction. One did one's penance, and you returned to the community. The imposed banishment was a tool of chastisement that was resorted to with quite common frequency, fundamentally a form of public embarrassment with which to exert control over very volatile mix living in Spinoza's Jewish community. But the terms of Spinoza's harem are very distinct and very unusual. They precluded his return to the fold. And it's this implacability that poses the mystery of his excommunication. People have their theories, and I have mine. What I propose is that Spinoza had prodded the most bruised and tender spot 
in his community's shared psyche, the very issue of identity. Spinoza's ethics, when you tear off all that deductive wrapping paper, is a radical reinterpretation of personal identity. He's merged the issues of identity, actively remaking our identity, and salvation. What we ought to do is reconstruct ourselves. What we think about, what we care about, what we feel, what we are. He says that this can be redone through reason. And to the extent that we do group identity, including Jewish identity, will have to cease to matter. And you might have noticed, I certainly have, that Jews tend to be very obsessed with the issue of Jewish identity. And Spinoza's community was certainly no exception. In fact, his was a community that was particularly obsessed with this question, even more than this. They were also, like Spinoza, most famous, their most infamous son, vitally concerned with the idea of actively reconstructing their personal identities, but in such a way that put them and the great philosopher whom they produced on a violent collision course with one another. It was a very distinctive community consisting of refugees from the Spanish-Portuguese Inquisition, which was a Jewish calamity um, whose tragic proportions would be exceeded only in the 20th century. The members of the synagogue were Sephardim, those who had originally come from Spain, from Sephardic in the Hebrew, and they were predominantly Moranos, those who had lived on the Iberian Peninsula, mostly in Portugal, which is where the bulk of the Jews had gone after they were expelled from Spain. They had lived in Portugal as outwardly practicing Christians since Judaism had been formally outlawed on the Iberian Peninsula at the end of the 15th century in Spain in 1492, and then a few years later, Portugal, in 1497. The word Morano, you all know, probably derives from the old Castilian for swine, uh, particularly apt slur to insult those believed to be concealing Jewish practice beneath Christian performance. The proportion of what were called new Christians, who were actually crypto-Judaizers, Moranos, is still disputed by historians. But what isn't in dispute was that the Office of the Holy Inquisition was untiringly wary of all new Christians, always watching for backsliding into Jewish rites, which was punishable by death. The guidelines that the church issued for detecting a crypto-Jew are amazing and included things like wearing clean clothes on Saturday, draining away the blood of meat, even extreme personal hygiene could be used to launch a charge about crypto-Judaizing. And interestingly, this term, new Christian, stuck for generations after the conversion and new Christians were separate. They were always vulnerable, even when they joined the highest reaches of the church. In fact, I discovered in doing the research for the book that my favorite saint of all times was St. Teresa of Avila. came from Jewish, yes, came from a new Christian stock. In all of the Catholic websites I read, she was described as coming from a Spanish noble family, and it's true that new Christians often marry into nobility in a way of not attracting too much attention from the Inquisition. So the conversions didn't necessarily help, which in fact some people argue that this makes the Inquisition 
Europe's first experiment with racial ideology. So I'm actually reading some of the sermons preached on the occasions of the auto de fe, sort of reeks of real racialist dogma. For example, this, the Inquisitor of 1628. From the moment of its conception, every fetus permanently carries with it the moral attributes, in the case of the Moranos, the moral depravity of its parents, end of quote. So there was this idea that sort of one's beliefs, one's uh, Judaism was encoded in the tainted blood. Spinoza's parents had been born in Portugal as Moranos. In fact, the entire Portuguese Jewish community of Amsterdam was composed of basically first and second generation Portuguese refugees. And the quite liberal, quite interesting city of Amsterdam provided the conditions for the former New Christians of Portugal to reconnect with Judaism, most of them barely knew by this time. So this was a community that was itself unusually focused on the subject of identity, especially of religious identity, of Jewish identity. Countless arguments during Spinoza's childhood, in fact, of what counts as being Jewish, whether the salvation that many of them considered implicit in their Jewish identity that they had clung to at great danger in their secret Milano past was brought about only by outwardly practicing as Jews, in which case their Milano brethren back in Iberia weren't really Jews, but really weren't saved, or whether the simple acknowledgement of oneself as a Jew, even in the hidden recesses of one's Milano heart, was sufficient for making one a Jew, or whether even this self-avowal wasn't necessary, whether Salvation was in the blood, so to speak. You, you derive from this people, and you were Jewish, and therefore saved. Saved, by the way, is the word that they use, interesting. It's not a particularly Jewish word, but it's to show how Christianized their way of thinking had become. The community was often met by terribly painful altercations on what it was to be Jewish. So, I asked myself, try to imagine, how would someone of Spinoza's makeup, and one of the things that the ethics reveals, especially in its middle psychological parts, is how acutely sensitive to psychological nuance Spinoza was, unlike many mathematical types. He was a very good observer of human nature. When you read it and you see your friends and acquaintances all over the place, and also yourself. How would someone of Spinoza's makeup have reacted to this impassioned obsession with these questions about Jewish identity and personal salvation that he was surrounded with in his youth. I want to try to imagine this. As a philosopher, of course, it's uh, somewhat illegitimate to call on one's powers of imagination. But, of course, that's the standard procedure for a novelist. One of the reasons I called him both the trains and those of using one's monolistic imagination. But I did try to imagine, what would it be like to be the kind of person he was, who feels himself in the index, surrounded with this kind of obsession about group identity, Jewish identity, religious identity. So I think that, like the lover of mathematics that he was, he would try to seek a clear and definitive solution to this problem, the deepest sort of solution, the sort that reframes the original question entirely, that in fact makes the original question disappear. Best kind of solution, philosophical solution to a problem. 
His solution would be to dissolve all sectarian frames of reference, to become, in effect, the first secularist, the first modern secularist, but even more strenuously, to point the way to a concept of personal identity, of active personal identity, in which the question of who's Jewish and who isn't simply can't meaningfully arise. It just becomes a question of no account at all when life is viewed sub specia eternitatis. Spinoza becomes the first Jew of the modern age who attempts not only to think, but actually to live outside of all definitions of himself as Jewish, or as Christian, or as having any kind of religious identity whatsoever. He never converted to Christianity after his excommunication, or would have been a really good career move on his part to have done that, but he refused to. So, to go back to the question of the title, why did Jews excommunicate the best philosopher they ever produced. Well, it wasn't all the Jews, it was his community of Jews, but it's bad enough. I think, clearly, Spinoza had indicated to his community years before he had yet worked out the details of the system which sets forth his own beliefs about the way in which issues of identity and salvation are connected. He managed to indicate to them that their issues of identity weren't his. And it's not accidental that, as a response to his mission, he changed his name from Baruch to Benedictus. It also shows him a great sense of humor. It's actually surprisingly funny. It's a great one. Sense of humor. He's quite, quite funny. Uh, still means the same thing. Means the same thing. Bless it. I do Benedictus, which means blessed. Yes. Yeah. Baruch. 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 He went about, not only in his thought, but in his life, trying to shed as essential all the passive markers of who he was, the assonance of his own personal history, of Jewish history, and instead identified himself in terms of what he was in relation to the infinite system, which is reality. And of course, what he was in relation to that infinite system is precisely the same as what any of us is in relation to the infinite system. The only way we differ from one another is the degree to which we know reality, the infinite system, and this is a difference that can be eradicated through rational thought, assimilating the objective necessity of Deus Sui Natura into the thinking and to the feeling matter of ourselves. But for his community that was seeking its Jewish identity with such historically understandable passion, Spinoza's solution was the most damnable betrayal that one of their own could commit. Because it was to deny that he was one of their own kind, it was to deny all meaning to that very phrase, one of their own kind. The final vision of reality that Baruch Spinoza Benedictus Spinoza arrived at is so dauntingly universal, so large and impersonal, that it's strange to contemplate that perhaps the original psychological drama that pointed him on the path that was to take him so far away from his community or from really any notion of Jewish identity was to try to think himself outside of the very dilemmas of Jewish history. Dilemmas that I think his letters 
He thought about, not only thought about, but felt as keenly as any of us. And I hope you won't accuse me of committing the genetic fallacy. I have been accused of this, but I hope you won't do it. <laughs> to suggest that this is something like what happened. Why an unusual thinker who came out of an unusual community that was unusually obsessed with the questions of personal identity and who merged the, this question with the issue of salvation, why this particular thinker would have thought his way clear to the most impersonal understanding of personal identity that Western philosophy has to date offered us. And to offer this impersonal understanding as the means of our salvation. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.